You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Craig, Kenway, Jennings, Drunken Deck, Redbeard the Pirate, Hefei, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And I'm pleased to introduce two new Commodores, Commodores Toves and Doran Brown. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off, things were tense among the crew of Signet on the island of Mindanao. Through November and early December 1686, Captain Charles Swan was growing increasingly authoritarian and violent with the crew, and that's kind of a bad look for a crew full of buccaneers. Additionally, Captain Charles Swan the factor, Mr. Harthop, and the merchant, Mr. Smith, appeared to be very much in league with Raja Laut, the military leader there at Maguindanao. They lived with Raja Laut, they ate with him every night, and Swan was unwilling to confront him. You'll remember that bit of drama surrounding Raja Laut piloting Signet into a worm-infested bit of river, apparently in a bid to claim her guns and her crew for his own military purposes. Swan was supposed to have had it out with Raja Laut after that little incident, but instead he had the captain of his own bark, Josiah Teat, whipped in a bid to reinforce his own power. Raja Laut was, at this point in the minds of the crew of Signet, a great villain. He was assumed to be scheming against the crew. Aside from that little plot with the worms, he currently had all of their seed money holed up inside his palace. It was seen as a sort of sneaky, dishonest backstabbing. Now, dishonest backstabbing is something we can respect here on the Pirate History Podcast, but the thing is, Raja Laut wasn't very good at it. He was a military man. He was a devout Muslim, although not very good at that either, and an aristocrat. Dishonest backstabbing was not his forte, especially not when he was attempting to do it against a bunch of masters of the craft. That's why Josiah Teat and John Reed brought Signet out into the harbor of Mindanao and stationed a guard aboard. They saw exactly what Rajalaut was up to and wanted to keep their lines of escape open in case of treachery or sabotage on the part of the people of Maguindanao. And I'd like to take this point to remind you of the three factions in Mindanao among the crew of Signet. 
There was the Loyalist faction, all of them Swan's men, and they were the smallest faction among the crew. Then there was the Sensible faction, which was by far the largest. Those were the members who advocated for leaving Mindanao under Captain Charles Swan to trade for spices in the Spice Islands and return home everybody rich men. And then we have the Pirate faction, who advocated for, well, piracy. They were all for attacking Spanish ships and getting rich and getting drunk and not really thinking much past today. And I could explain their plan in more depth, but that would be giving the story away. Because, spoilers, the pirate faction is going to win. This is episode 132, General Rogueries. Now all of that is very dramatic stuff, but it's grounded in a real-world concern. The late fall and early winter of 1686 was the height of the westerly monsoon. These were the winds that could carry the pirates deeper into the Indies, and in reality, they were the only winds that could carry them home. The longer that Captain Swan sat idly by, the more and more nervous grew the members of his crew who eventually wanted to go home. And then what with Swan's policy, i.e. the beatings will continue until morale improves, and these very real concerns about getting underway before the winds shifted out of favor, it was impossible to stay neutral in this argument. The vast majority of the crew, after only a couple of weeks here, was against Swan, but there were still key differences between the sensible faction and the pirate faction. We could look at it kind of like a primary in an election. You have the sensible faction, who are the moderates, or maybe the centrists. They weren't yet ready to turn to outright piracy. Instead, they wanted to stick to the plan and to stay right with the law. But more and more, they seemed to be adopting policies of the pirate faction. Namely, they were warming to the idea of deposing Captain Swan. They realized that he was not the candidate to lead them toward their plan. Instead, they chose Captain Josiah Teat of the Bark, a man who had been publicly beaten by Swan, to be the new captain. And then we have the pirates and their candidate, John Reed. Reed was an extremist. A radical in this election, if you will. A pirate radical. A pie radical, maybe. Now that group of the crew, the pirate faction, was smaller than the moderates, but they were looking more and more attractive to those among the moderate faction who wanted to eventually get home and hopefully earn some money on this year's long voyage. But there were a few among the crew who chose not to side with any of the factions. There were a few, maybe as many as a dozen, but probably closer to eight, who fled into the highlands of Mindanao. Some of those took a woman with them, usually from among the lowest class in Maguindanao, who were Moro women, but not Muslim women, not members of the Maguindanaoan Sultanate. Dampier suggests that they may have had help from Raja Laoud to enact their escape, and it's entirely possible they did. But we can wish them happy lives among the mountain people of Mindanao, 
that were long and full of many wonderful children. However, those who left disappeared from this story and from history. There were a few among the crew who had families back in England that they hoped someday to see again. For those among the crew, Swan's plan of staying in Mindanao would not work, the pirates' plan of fighting for Spanish plunder would not work, and the idea of fleeing into the hills was unacceptable. And for a few of these who didn't think that the moderates were ever going to win this debate and wind up buying spices and returning to England happy and healthy merchants, well, they bought a canoe, a seafaring canoe, and they were preparing that canoe to make for India and an English port, hopefully, where they could book passage home. But Captain Swan caught wind of this little plot and correctly surmised that these men would very likely notify the East India Company of his presence at Mindanao, and that would very likely displease the company. So Swan took their canoe by force. He burned it, and he had the men beaten. That little group, after their bruises healed, bought another canoe, but Swan found that one as well. Regardless of all of that, regardless of which faction they might belong to, the majority of the crew of Signet was preparing to leave. They were readying the ship, they were supplying her with victuals. they had plenty of rice and water, but they still needed meat. They had previously cut a deal with Raja Laut to trade him iron for some beef that they could salt and preserve to take with them. Now the crew had already come through on their end. They provided the iron to Raja Laut, but Raja Laut had not yet produced any beef. He had a hunting expedition planned that included himself and his household and a few skilled hunters, you know, ringers on the team, and six men of the signet. That party included Captain Swan, Mr. Harthop, Mr. Smith, a couple of other sycophants, and William Dampier. Now, Dampier spends his narrative largely gushing about the proa they took, which was a pleasure barge, and the opulence he saw on board Raja Laut's proa, the comforts that were afforded them, including food and drugs and the many women that Raja Laut brought with him. Then he writes, quote, One of the general's servants had offended and was punished. He was bound fast, flat on his belly to the prow, which was so near the water that by the vessel's motion it frequently delved under water, and the man along with it. And sometimes, when hoisted up, he had scarce time to blow before he would be carried under water again. End quote. This was all great fun for Raja Laut and his company, but the English, even those who were fully in Raja Laut's pocket, were visually disturbed. But that evening they had a feast, and the women danced enticing dances, and were led to believe that not a man among the hunting party went to bed alone. Dampier writes, quote, There were five or six more of our company with me, young men who had Delilahs there, which made them very fond of the place. End quote. And over the next several days their evenings involved feasting and dancing and dallying with Delilahs. But during the daytime they hunted. That was, after all, what they were here to do. That is to say that they dragged themselves out of bed sometime around noon, 
had a big breakfast, and tramped around on the grassland hillsides for about two hours, laughing and conversing and drinking rice wine, which, of course, they weren't allowed to do in town. And then they went back to their lodge and cavorted until everyone was sated with food and drink and boy and hashish and kava and women, and then they passed out. Now, all of that sounds like great fun. In fact, I'm personally hard-pressed to name a better way to spend a long weekend, but that also means that they failed to find even a single buffalo or deer, let alone to kill one. Raja Laut may have been showing these men a great time, but he was failing to hold up his end of the bargain, and that means that the crew might very likely starve to death. So while most of the Englishmen were enjoying themselves, in the wake of that disappointment, some of the tension between Charles Swan and Raja Laut bubbled up. One evening they broke out into an argument, which Dampier overheard, and what he learned there shocked him, but it did not shock Mr. Harthop or Mr. Smith. Charles Swan had, previously to this argument, loaned a great deal of money to Raja Laut, twenty ounces of gold, in fact. Today, twenty ounces of gold would be worth thirty thousand dollars, more or less. If we were to adjust that for inflation, we would get one point eight million dollars. And that's a lot of money. But if we assume, using East India Company metrics of the time, that one could quadruple one's money by trading in nutmeg and cinnamon, we would get a net loss of around $7 million of Signet's money. $7 million that Raja Laut, loudly and forcefully during this argument in hearing of Dampier, declared not to be a loan, but a gift from Charles Swan. Then, Rajalut demanded that if Swan was determined to leave Mindanao, he had to first pay for the food he and his friends ate at Rajalut's table. Only then would Rajalut produce the beef he owed. This was disturbing stuff. Stuff that might have suggested to Dampier that they might never be allowed to leave Mindanao. At least, not with Captain Swan, or their money. Mr. Harthop and Mr. Smith, upon the close of the argument, told Dampier to keep quiet about what he had heard. That's how they were going to keep order among the crew, after all. Dampier agreed to that, but Dampier was lying. He told John Reed and all the rest about this turn of events. He gave them all of the information. He told them that Swan was not in Raja Laut's pocket, but he was being extorted to stay, and he was unlikely to willingly leave Mindanao, as was their money. The crew was incensed. They planned to confront Captain Swan at the very next opportunity and demand that they forcefully take back their money and leave this place. But that opportunity didn't come until Christmas, 1686. The whole crew, though, on Christmas Day, was set to meet aboard the Signet, and this was the first time they'd been together in months' time. But Swan, as was to be expected, arrived late to the festivities, he refused to hear any complaints, and he left early. This was the last opportunity that Captain Swan had 
in my opinion. He, on Christmas Day, 1686, lost his captaincy of the ship. By failing to take any of his men's concerns into account, he lost his right to lead them. The following two weeks would grow increasingly tense. There were fights on board. There was open argument with Swan and his men in the streets of Mindanao. Dampier writes, quote, The whole crew were at this time under a general disaffection, all for want of action. They urged Captain Swan to go to sea. These began to be unruly and sent ashore for rack and honey to make punch, wherewith they grew drunk and quarrelsome. End quote. Dampier tells us that he feared to go aboard as he abhorred drink and quarrelsome behavior. But part of the problem here is that the ship and the crew were ready to go. There were somewhere around 80 men on Mindanao with nothing but idleness and drugs and women to occupy their time. And Dampier talks about the desire for action over and over again. And there's a reason for that. You know, they act as though the monsoon winds are a saving grace, that they're the only hope the crew had of returning home any time this year. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. In fact, if we were to look past Dampier's narrative, that gives us a few telling points of interest. If we think back to well before Dampier and company arrived at Mindanao, on the other side of the ocean, we'll remember the Signet splitting up with the other pirates on the second Pacific adventure. They sailed for the coast of Mexico. Now the reason that we are given was Captain Swan's desire to trade in East Indian spices, and that's an activity that he was really busy not doing here in late 1686 and early 1687. Swan was resting on his laurels while order crumbled in his crew. But there is another possible reason, a reason which we were not given. The Manila Galleons. The treasure ships that crossed the Pacific from Philippine Nueva España to Mexican Nueva España and back again. Now we know today that these galleons didn't often make landfall in Mexico. Instead, they sailed for Panama. And while the pirates back in 1685 knew about the treasure galleons in Panama, they couldn't be sure that there wasn't some port at which the Spanish unloaded untold riches there in Mexico. The English were almost totally ignorant of the Pacific coast of America. Outside of the voyages of Drake and Cavendish, they knew barely anything. They weren't even sure at this point if Baja was an island or a peninsula until Dampier confirmed that the Californian lake separating Baja from mainland Mexico did not travel all the way through. It's possible that the crew was trying to catch and capture an extraordinarily rich prize upon her arrival to Mexico. One of the treasure ships, far before she ever would have reached Panama, at her first dock in the New World. Now they failed at that because there were no ships to capture, but they did gain some insight on that voyage. The English took several Spanish captives there in Mexico, and we're going to talk a lot more about them next time, but for now they did have news of a Manila galleon that had just set out to cross the Pacific Ocean. 
we can envision a story in which their sudden and underprepared passage across the Pacific Ocean was in chase of just such a ship, a ship that, you might remember, they found upon their arrival at the island of Guam. Only upon their arrival at Guam, Swan lost his nerve. Quote, Our men were in a great heat to go out after her, but Captain Swan persuaded them out of that humor, for he was now wholly averse to any hostile action. End quote. But now, almost a year later, the monsoon was shifting so that the signet and that same Manila galleon could travel west. The crew had been sitting idly by for months now, but if they were going to catch that ship, this was the time. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Again, Dampier dances around that possibility. He tells us the crew was eager for action, but not what action. And we'll be looking into all that as well next time. For now, we need to look at the other reasons that the crew was growing agitated and turning to unruly drunkenness there on Mindanao. And I do want to note that even at this late stage, the crew was still undivided on how to treat Captain Swan. The pirates among the crew were prepared to leave him, or kill him if need be, and go out a-roving. And that decision would see the crew of Signet labeled Hostis Humani Generis, enemies of the whole human race, by the standards of their own government and every government in the world, pirates. The moderate faction were still of the opinion that even if they voted Captain Swan out of power, which they at this point wanted to do, they still needed to take him along. They could trade for spices, as was the original plan, or, in the wake of new information that they had just received, they could sail out as privateers. But to accomplish either of those goals, they needed their legally appointed captain safe and sound. And that particular question is going to jump to the forefront of our story very soon, but not yet. Because, while the crew was busy drinking and debating, 
two things happened that hastened their departure. First, there were the deaths. Sudden, suspicious illnesses that were followed by painful death, and several of them in quick succession. The surgeon's mate, Herman Coppinger, examined the bodies and found the livers to be shriveled and dry. Now, there are a few possible causes here. It's possible that they were simple tropical diseases, a few of which match those symptoms. However, we would think that the surgeon or Dampier would note that. It could be that these deaths were caused by toxins that were willingly ingested that affect the liver. Bwai, which they were enjoying, kava, and kratom are all intoxicants that will make you feel good and that negatively impact liver health. All three of these are Southeast Asian in origin and were commonly used there in Maguindanao and in Islamic societies all over the region that frowned upon alcohol. Of course, the doses have to be exceptionally high, and to kill someone it takes a long time. Of course, the pirates were exactly the sort of people that would have enjoyed them to excess, but to imagine seven or eight men in a week's time dying, well, that stretches the imagination to the breaking. And neither tropical disease nor drug use was what jumped to the forefront of the pirates' minds. They thought what I imagine you are thinking. Poison. That's what Herman Coppinger and William Dampier believed. That's what John Reed and Josiah Teat believed. That's what nearly everyone among the crew believed. And what made those deaths even more suspicious was that they all seemed to come from the pirate faction. The faction that was arguing most vociferously to leave. Raja Laut had plenty of good reason to poison the pirates among the crew, and the crew assumed that he was to blame. And there is a ton of circumstantial evidence to suggest that if the pirates were in fact poisoned, Raja Laut was ultimately the culprit. We can't rule him out here, but we can't place blame too quickly either. Plenty of others on Mindanao had good reason to kill pirates as well. Remember that order was breaking down among the crew, and when order breaks down among a crew of pirates, that doesn't bode well for anyone in their general vicinity. They were growing more riotous and more obstinate and more villainous. Dampier doesn't give a lot of details here, but we can imagine the fights and the outright thefts and the sexual excess. Dampier writes, quote, The natives are very expert at poisoning and do it upon small occasions, nor did our men want forgiving offense through their general rogueries. And sometimes, by dallying too familiarly with their women, even before their faces. End quote. Dampier's not talking about pagalis or concubines that some of the crew had procured. He's talking about pirates seducing the wives and daughters of those same locals. But what he doesn't talk about, and what very likely took place as well, were some pretty horrific scenes of sexual violence. We're talking armed bands of angry pirates roaming the streets and looking for victims, anyone who tried to stop them, brutally beaten or killed. Now, in many older chivalric or chauvinistic cultures, poison is often considered a woman's weapon. We should not ignore the possibility 
that it wasn't Raja Laut, nor cuckolded husbands that poisoned the pirates, but the women of Mindanao, victims and victims' mothers and sisters, that poisoned the pirates in their search for revenge. Now, all of that violence and debauch was the sort of thing that the general of Maguindanao, Raja Laut, could have put an end to almost immediately with his force of arms. He had an army. That's the reason that the pirates weren't able to storm his palace and take their money back. But that would have ended in a skirmish that would have likely ended in a battle, and that would eventually have chased off Signet and the rest of her crew. Swan also could have stopped this sort of excess, at least according to Dampier, who writes, quote, What designs Swan had I know not, for he was commonly very cross. I am confident if he had made a motion to go to any English factory, most of his men would have consented to it. His authority might have overswayed those that were refractory, for it was very strange to see the awe that these men were in of him, though he punished the most stubborn and daring of his men. End quote. But Swan sat idle and recalcitrant. He did nothing. Dampier continues, quote, These disorders might have been crushed if Captain Swan had used his authority to suppress them. But he, with his merchants living always ashore, there was no command. And therefore every man did what he pleased and encouraged each other in his villainies. End quote. Now we shouldn't assume that Swan's lackeys were not aware of this state of affairs. Mr. Harthop, the factor, was very aware. He begged Captain Swan to go to the ship and to address the men, to tell them what his plans were and to assure them that they had something to look forward to. But Swan refused. And at this point something interesting happened. Harthop pulled rank on Captain Swan. Remember that Captain Charles Swan had absolute authority, in theory, while on board. But Harthop, represented the investors in this venture. That is to say, he was the representative of Swan's bosses. So Charles Swan agreed to address the men and called them all to be aboard on the signet on the 13th of January, 1687. This was it. This was the moment that Swan had the opportunity to gain his authority back and to travel out as captain of a successful merchant voyage to the East Indies. And the crew was willing to hear him. They gathered on board slowly, until nearly everyone was on board, two days aforetime, on the 11th of January. And with nearly the entire crew on board, the other shoe dropped. I'm curious as to whether any of what follows actually happened as we are told it happened. It rings to me of conspiracy. John Reed, the leader of the pirate faction, who I have suggested may possibly, although unlikely, be the father of Mary Reed, and I should note his name is spelled R-E-A-D, John Reed went a-snooping in the captain's quarters. Dampier mentions at this point that John Reed was a man of letters and something of an artist. John Reed found in Captain Swan's quarters a journal, from his time on the Pacific Ocean with the crew. You may remember Captain Swan jovially slapping the frail Dampier on the back and declaiming upon their having spotted land, quote, Ah, Dampier, you would have made them but a poor meal, end quote. And that's a fun sort of jape when you know you're safe and not going to be eaten. But apparently, according to this journal, 
Captain Swan was much more concerned about that sort of thing than his jokes suggested. And who can blame him here? I mean, he's on a solitary ship, hundreds of leagues from civilization or even land, with a crew of killers that was looking lean and hungry. I imagine any of us would grow a bit concerned. But whispers of threats to eat him reached his ears there on the signet, and they appear to have... Well, if the journal that John Reed produced here is to be believed, those weeks in the Pacific drove Captain Charles Swan insane. He details his fear and hatred of certain crewmen and the abuses that he would have enjoyed inflicting upon them if only he could without those madmen turning to cannibalism. He disparages their loyalty to himself and to England, he insults their honor, and he even denies their courage. And then, and this is the truly damning part, he outlines his plans to remove certain members of the crew who weren't pulling their weight, how to have them killed in such a fashion that it would look like an accident. I mean, he suggests having certain important lines weakened and almost snapped, and then sending those crewmen up to work them where they would fall to their death. And once that crewman happens to be dead, well, meets back on the menu, boys. And of course, Captain Swan is blameless in all of this. However, I find this a bit questionable largely because some of the men that Swan targeted in his journal were influential leaders of the sensible faction. One of them, a popular gunner from Jamaica named, confusingly, John Reed, only spelled R-E-E-D, was targeted especially hard. Josiah Teat and a host of others on the fence were targeted as well. But what we're expected to believe here is that John Reed... R-E-A-D, the leader of the pirate faction, an artist who knew how to read and write, Dampier tells us, stumbled across this journal while no one else was with him that detailed Captain Swan's plan to kill and eat the very members of the crew who were arguing to keep Captain Swan alive. Is that possible? Certainly, it is. Is it probable? No, it stretches the imagination. Did John Reed instead forge those diary entries? Well, Dampier doesn't come right out and say, and I wasn't there. But he does, Dampier, leave a trail of breadcrumbs in his manuscript that leads us to that conclusion. So while he doesn't argue one point or another, he seems to very strongly suggest that. Some of the crewmen many of those who had been so targeted by Captain Swan, who were led by John Reed, the R-E-E-D Reed from Jamaica, went wild. They rowed ashore and had their way with the inhabitants of Maguindanao. It wasn't a pirate raid. There, first of all, weren't enough men. It was only a dozen or so angry drunkards. But they raised quite a ruckus. There was rape and there was pillage, Apparently it was raining at the time, so there was no burning. But they were going mad here, looking for revenge, and if we are to point to a purpose in their rage, they were trying to draw out Swan and Raja Laut. But they failed to do so. Come dawn, 
Along with the rising sun, they had some fierce hangovers, and the mob slunk back to the signet. The John Reed from England, R-E-A-D, he took control of the situation. He rallied the crew alongside Josiah Teat and fired off the ship's guns. Now, this wasn't a barrage on the city, but it was a message and a warning. They wanted to let them know that they were no longer playing around here. So Mr. Harthop, who seems to have been the only person of any integrity among Swan's cadre, answered the summons. He realized upon arrival at Signet that his authority, the authority of Captain Swan, the authority of the owners of the Signet, had fallen apart. He was no longer in command here. The crew showed him the journal and demanded answers from the captain. Now at this point, no clear leader had been chosen among the crew of Signet. Swan still technically was in command, but while they waited, the crew decided that no matter what Swan was going to say to them, he could not be allowed to remain as captain. He could go with them, but he would not be in command. They chose instead to hold elections for captain and quartermaster and the other primary officers. However, first of all, they had to summon a few notable stragglers from among the crew to take part. There were maybe as many as a dozen men they had to collect, but namely William Dampier and Herman Coppinger, the navigator and the surgeon's mate. Now, Dampier doesn't tell us much about his part in all of this. He certainly plays it down, but he did come willingly once he realized what was happening. Personally, I believe he may have already been ashore, but wanted to remove himself from some of the more illicit actions. Coppinger, on the other hand, was tricked, according to William Dampier. This may or may not be the case, but we're told that those among the crew who went to fetch Herman Coppinger told the doctor that someone on board had broken a leg and needed help. However, they were both made clear on exactly what was happening as soon as they were aboard and took part in the election. And that election was, of course, between John Reed and Josiah Teat, the leader of the pirate faction against the leader of the moderate faction. And, as I mentioned earlier, and as we will explore next time, there were opportunities for legal privateering in the region, opportunities the crew knew about, and Teat absolutely would have led the crew in that direction. Reed, on the other hand, was arguing for raids against the Spanish, and as England and Spain were currently at peace, that was piracy. So, in a way, this election was a referendum between privateering and piracy. In a more symbolic way, this election is a representation of the sea change taking place in our story at this moment. Thus far, with a few notable exceptions, most of the rovers about whom we have spoken have been privateers. Agents of the crown that were awarded letters of mark from... King Louis, or King Charles, or the Prince of Orange, or one of their agents. Now that line between pirate and privateer has grown excessively thin and disputed by rival powers, but nearly everyone we've spoken of, from Barbarossa and Francis Drake on down to Morgan and the French buccaneers, they all had that piece of paper. Even if that piece of paper was years out of date from a governor and a monarch who were no longer in power, it was a shield. A flimsy shield, certainly, but still there. 
even the crewmen of this ship back on the coast of South America when they were engaging in what could only be called piracy, they sailed with a privateer who had a letter of mark. Now, that piece of paper came from a foreign French governor, which was illegal under English law. That governor had also, long before they were raiding on the coast of South America, been ousted from power on Saint-Domingue, and that made it all the more invalid and illegal. But the crew of Signet could still hide behind that piece of paper, and if they brought in the goods, they just might win that argument. And at this point, they had no piece of privateering paper. They had no letter of mark, no letter of reprisal. However, they could get one. Over in India, right now, they knew that they could get a letter of mark from the East India Company, allowing them to go out and commit acts of piracy legally. But they would be limited in their targets. They would not be allowed to attack the Spanish or the Dutch, and if they chose instead to turn pirate... They could attack whoever they chose. In the end, the vote was close, but the crew elected John Reed and piracy. Dampier doesn't tell us how he voted, but he does write that the crew was still willing to take Captain, former Captain Swan, along if he chose to leave Mindanao with them. And he even opines that at this late stage, quote, If Captain Swan had yet come aboard, he might have dashed all their designs. But he neither came himself, as a captain of any prudence and courage would have done, nor sent till the time was expired. So we left Captain Swan and about thirty-six men ashore, and about sixteen we had buried there, the most of which died by poison. End quote. The crew of Signet numbered, well, the official crew of Signet numbered around 80 men, but the Signet carried more than that. A few, probably foolish, Englishmen brought their women with them on board, and they also had a number of captives from Mexico and Spain and the Philippines that were not counted in the official crew. We're going to be talking about them next time. For now, though, the crew sailed out of Maguindanao Harbor on the 14th of January, 1687, at three of the clock in the afternoon. Before them lay the open ocean, and all of them had plunder on their minds. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, Everyone who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, and we've had a number of new patrons recently, thank you to all of you. Everybody who has donated through our website, everybody who has recommended this show, online or in real life, and everybody who has left a rating or a review, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight.